So we are picking up uh, in Mark chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the, king, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran with a sponge with sour wine, uh, filled with a sponge with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we always need the Spirit to work, to illuminate our, our minds and, uh, and make the good news of Jesus clear. So let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would give your spirit even as you promised that through your word we might hear clearly the good news of Jesus. That we might understand what is so good about this Good Friday in which he died. That we might know the depths of your heart. And that we might see the contrast between what we bring to the table and all the riches of love and grace 
that you bring. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there are a lot of uncomfortable truths in life, aren't there? We, come, we, we just kind of have to realize them as we grow older. I remember when I was, I don't know, I was, we, were, we were in the late 20s, uh, went skiing, and it was, I had not been skiing for years, and found out that I did not recover. Already, even in my late 20s, did not recover as easily as I did when I was younger. Uh, when you get older, and I'm not very old, I know, uh, you start to realize these things about your own body, right? We realize lots of things about ourselves as we get, as we move along in life, right? We, maybe you were a high school athlete, and at some point you realize your days of athletic glory are behind you. Uh, maybe you aspire to be a great artist, but the opportunities for artists are few and far between. Uh, maybe you have visions of what your life will be like. I mean, most of us, our lives are not exactly what we thought they would be when we were younger, one way or another. The really tough truths are about what is wrong with us. I mean, giving up on athletic glory is kind of one thing. But starting to learn to be honest about what is wrong with me is another. But sometimes also the hardest truths to admit to are what others have done in the face of our wrongs. And in particular, I would say, the hardest thing sometimes to be honest with, and we'll see why, is what God has done in the face of what we've done wrong. You see, the cross is the moment that defines Christianity. It's the moment that really defines the gospel. Uh, it is the moment in which, of course, God actually saves us, but in saving us, it also reveals so much. In particular, we'll see this morning that the cross is the meeting place between the truth about us, it's the meeting place of human evil, and divine judgment. But it is also in that meeting place that it reveals God's redemption. So think about human evil for a minute. It's not hard to see. <laughs> it's all over this story, isn't it? Uh, and it's worth reminding ourselves, what is the charge against Jesus? Verse 26 tells us, right, it's posted at the top of the cross, and we've been hearing about it all along. If you've been in this series with us as Jesus is arrested, we've been hearing this charge that he's the king of the Jews, that he is the king of Israel. Uh, this has been, interestingly enough, in his trial, the one thing Jesus would admit to. He didn't answer any of the other things that people brought up, but on this one point, he would agree. He would speak up. And of course, it is this one point that absolutely seals his fate. Because it is this one point, if he is the king of God's people, that Rome would understand him to be a threat. 
Maybe not a very existential threat in their viewpoint, but still somebody who claims authority in contrast to them. And of course, they were right to some extent (laughs) to see that he is a king. Of course, they also misunderstood the nature of his kingdom and his power. And of course, that gets played out here. And so it's the context of him being this would-be king, as the Romans saw it, that starts this cycle of mockery. It picks up, in it's verses 16 to 20, we see the soldiers, right? Pontius Pilate has given his verdict, and Jesus is handed over to the wolves. The soldiers uh, pick up the charge that he is a would-be king, and, he, and so they put a purple robe on him. Purple is... This goes way back in ancient history. <laughs> Actually, purple is often associated with royalty. Uh, it actually has a particularly powerful meaning in the context of the Roman Empire uh, because actually, well, it's later than Jesus, but it has become so associated with the emperor, with the Caesars, that eventually nobody else is allowed to wear <laughs> purple, or at least the specific kind of purple, uh, that the royal family wears. Uh, to, to become Caesar was, uh, was referred to as donning the purple. Uh, so they, of course, are mocking him as a royal character, and they weave a crown of thorns to make it a kind of mock coronation. And they bow down to him, and they pay homage to him, uh, all the while while beating him. But they're not alone. Did you notice that? As they, as they get to Golgotha, the crowd picks this up. And they start mocking him. Verses 29 and 30, right? They're, they're saying, you said you could destroy yourself, but you can't even save yourself. Come down from the cross. The religious leaders pick it up. He said he could save others. can't save himself. They're going on and on and on about this. And even the two robbers start to mock him, who are being crucified next to him. Matthew tells a story about one of them in a longer conversation, but, you, but there are probably more than two anyway. <laughs> there are ones on either side, but there are probably more people being crucified. And we mentioned these are not just normal, I mentioned this last week when we were thinking about Barabbas, but... These are not just normal uh, shoplifters. These were freedom fighters, who, but they lived off of robbery, uh, especially if it had anything to do with Rome. Uh, they were happy to rob different places, uh, steal for, to make their living. And Jesus is so weakened by this point of, all, of being beaten, but in verse 21, he can't even carry the crossbeam of the cross which was the normal practice. If you were being crucified, you would carry the crossbeam on your shoulders. You can't do it. They have to inscript this guy, Simon, uh, who, interestingly enough, and this would be too long a thing to even to explain too much of, but Simon and, and his two sons are mentioned, which almost certainly means these are people who ended up in the church later on. Uh, they're mentioned by name because this... Mark is telling us people he heard 
this firsthand account from. Uh, These are footnotes for us about who it is. And and they find this man who's come in. Cyrene is out in Libya. So he is probably a Jewish man who lives in the diaspora who's come back to Jerusalem for the Passover and is conscripted to do this because Jesus is too weak. And Jesus also, notice this, refuses the wine mixed with myrrh. That's back in verse 23. Uh, That was a kind of numbing, had some kind of numbing effect. Uh, I mean, it wasn't a complete anesthesia in the way we think about it. But, uh, of course, if you were the one being crucified, there was obviously an incentive to take something like that. Uh, But, of course, it paid off for the Romans because you would last longer. And the spectacle would go on. And all of this, I think, brings into clear focus the shame of the cross. This is important to understand. You see, humans have come up with innumerable methods for torturing people and for humiliating people. The cross was an exceptionally effective way of bringing those two things together. Of humiliating and of torturing Fleming Rutledge, who's written a lot about uh, the crucifixion, she writes this, being hung up by the roadside on a cross, completely exposed and powerless, was to be displayed as publicly as possible as an object of the most extreme scorn and revulsion. It was impossible for a crucified victim to be dignified or heroic. That was the nature of the method, to reduce the convicted person to subhuman status. She notes how the the Gospels don't actually tell us a ton about the physical torture of it, but instead, she says, what they do call attention to is the shame. The spitting and mocking, the location outside the city, the carrying of the cross, the placement between two thieves, the degradation, the God-forsakenness. And this is so important to understand because one of the things that gets exposed at the cross is our cruelty and the weight of it. Malcolm Mugridge was a, uh, was a famous uh, journalist and kind of cultural critic through, the, through a good chunk of the 20th century, but he spent most of his life as, as an agnostic and then came to faith. And this is, what he, this is one of the things he said, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. Get that? The depravity of of man, meaning humanity, is at once the most empirically verifiable reality. All you have to do is look around to see it. But at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. It is one of those things we do not want to admit about ourselves. Of course, sometimes our wickedness converges in ways that achieve a kind of epic status. And the 20th and 21st century have been filled with those stories, haven't they? Of course, looming large in our moral imaginations is Nazi Germany, and rightly so. But really, I mean, since that time, there have been campaigns of ethnic cleansing going on almost without ceasing. Perhaps not always in places we are that 
concerned with as Americans. And certainly not often on the kind of industrial scale of the World War II powers, but they're still there, ongoing to this day. But most of us don't think of ourselves as being involved in that sort of thing, and we're not. No, we're just engaged in the kind of everyday cruelties, the cutting remarks, the private lusts, the fits of anger, Shall I go on? Uh, Whether it's the fear of consequences or the fact that we are distracted by so many other things we want to do, uh, we are, by God's God's common grace, (laughs) spared from perhaps being the worst we could be. But that does not change the effect. That sin is a reality at work in every aspect of our lives. And we do... The strangest thing, we take even things that are good and we make them ultimate. So that even things that are good, we turn to an excuse to do evil. I mean, the list isn't hard to come up with, right? We love our country, but by making it an ultimate love, we excuse all sorts of things that we think are best for our country. By loving our family and making it an ultimate thing, we excuse all kinds of terrible things that go on. By loving our career and wanting its longevity, we excuse any number of shortcuts, of ways in which we dodge what God tells us to do. I mean, there's many, many a righteous cause out there. And I'm sure you feel it in a day like ours. How much shaming, how much anger, how much twisting of the truth is done in the name of righteous causes. So that we take even the things that are good and taint them. You see, that is really what You know, reform circles refer to this idea as total depravity. And of course, the point isn't that we are the very worst version of ourselves that we could be. No. Again, there are lots of reasons why that we our behavior might get curbed. Uh, John Owen, one of the uh, one great theologian in his book, "The Mortification of Sin." That's a mouthful says, the reason why a natural man is not always perpetually in the pursuit of one, some one lust night and day is because he has so many to serve. Uh, we may be distracted by other things we want. We may be distracted or cur- our behavior might be curbed by fear of the consequences if we really did the things that we want to do. But at least when we are left to our own desires... The point of total depravity is that sin creeps into every corner of our lives to some degree, into every corner, into everything we touch. This is not a popular message, obviously. We would like to think that people are basically good. But as Mugridge pointed out, the empirical evidence 
proves very much the opposite. And the point of the good news of the Bible is not that we are good. That's not the good news. And the point isn't that we can be better. Though God does want to work in our lives, in fact, will work in our lives, that is not the point. And this is one of the things that the cross exposes. Here we can see not only our sin, but also our hatred of what is righteous and good and holy. Because to be in the presence of somebody who's really doing something good, have you ever had that experience? Somebody you feel like is really doing something good? It always brings up the pang of guilt, doesn't it? Well, shouldn't I be doing something better? Well, the cross exposes our human evil. It also reveals God's divine judgment. Maybe that's an obvious place we're going with all this, isn't it? The crucifixion is a moment of judgment. Uh, Of course, the Romans thought they were passing judgment on Jesus. That was pretty obvious, right? Uh, You thought you could rival Roman power? Well, here you go. This is what we do to those who challenge us. Uh, Also, it's worth recognizing the Jewish population would have thought of this as a cursed death. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says this, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And there are Jewish sources that talk about crucifixion this way. We also know of, I mean, there are moments in the Old Testament, and Joshua in particular, where uh, those who had stood up against God and his forces are hung from a tree as a sign of a curse. Uh, later on in Galatians 3, Paul will think of this verse as well when he makes a point about what Jesus' crucifixion is. He was cursed. Well, if that's not enough, there's darkness that descends on the land in verse 33. Do you notice this? So uh, I just want to make sure everybody gets the timeline here. He is crucified at the third hour, which is about nine in the morning. Of course, you know, because you're starting, if you think about sunrise around six. Around nine is the third hour. The sixth hour is noon, and the ninth hour is 3 p.m. Okay. So from the sixth to the ninth hour, noon to three, when the sun ought to be the brightest, darkness descends. And there's no description, of course, of rain or anything like that. It's not like this is some pop-up thunderstorm where it just all of a sudden kind of gets gray out. No, this is darkness. That was one of the plagues, you know, second to last one in Egypt. And of course, darkness is throughout the prophets routinely associated with the day of judgment, a day of darkness and gloom. You can look at Isaiah 60 or Joel 2 and any number of, number of other places to see this pretty clearly. That darkness, this is a supernatural darkness. The sun is blotted out. Perhaps in terms of the action, you know, and what the sequence of events that unfolds, it's the tearing of the curtain that's maybe the most obvious in verse 38. If you're you're not familiar with the temple, 
the temple proper is a building that has basically two rooms to it. There were side rooms for stores and other things like that. Anybody could go into the courtyard, at least anybody that was ceremonially clean, could go into the courtyard, uh, and they would bring their sacrifices there. Only the priest could go into the building, and they would go into the first part of it. And there was another altar for incense, and there were you know all these other things which are not important for right now. But there was a back room. Uh, in the back was the place called the Most Holy Place, the Holy of Holies. Uh, before the exile, that was where the Ark of the Covenant was. When the tabernacle and then later the temple were built, uh, the cloud of smoke and fire of God's glory entered into that back room. And it was, and only one person went in there once a year. The high priest went in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And it was separated by this really thick curtain. I mean, this is not a, this is, this is not you know, some thin material like this. This was a thick curtain. You could not, but with your hands, no matter how strong you were, rip that thing apart. You, the only way to tear it apart would be to hack it to pieces. And what we're told is the moment that Jesus dies, the curtain rips apart. Later, we're going to hear about the Spirit showing back up in New Testament history. But at this moment, it is the sign that God's presence has departed. God has left the building. The King of Israel, the King of his people, has died, has been judged, and the temple is abandoned. And if it's not enough, what does Jesus say before he dies? The cry of dereliction, as they historically call it. The first verse of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the stunning thing about the cross is how God forsaken it is. It is not just that it is a thing that's done to shame him before others, but it is a moment of judgment where God has turned away. The Father has turned his love away from the Son for us. It is the very stuff of hell. That is the defining feature of hell, of God's wrath, is that his love is fully removed. His restraint is removed. This is a powerful and significant moment. That is an understatement. I don't even know how to say this. This is the turning point of history because the king has given himself in our place. It is sometimes said by contemporary theologians that the idea that Jesus died in our place is a kind of legal fiction. Uh, and that's because they are thinking, as Westerners in the 21st century, thinking about and imagining that our sort of democratic, republican systems, I don't mean that in terms of the parties, I mean a democratic republic, which we live in, uh, is the way that things ought to be run. 
And I don't doubt the goodness of it, or at least the wisdom of it, as we are, but that is not the way the world is. The world is under God's kingship. And to think about judgment then properly, we should not be thinking about a court system that is separate from other parts of government. We should be thinking about a king's court in which all of it is brought together under his leadership and where he is the representative of his people. So that when Jesus dies, when the king decides that he is going to take responsibility for what his people have done, justice is served. He is judged in our place. And you see, it is that moment when Jesus is forsaken that defines Christianity over and against every other form of religion and blows up every category that critics have for the gospel. You see, on the one hand, it is true that religion is often criticized for being wish fulfillment, projecting onto the universe, things that we wish are true, to give us comfort or to assure us that we have uh, some kind of right to the power and position that we have. It depends if you're Freudian or Marxist, how you take that. But that is the kind of criticism of religion, and there is, let's be honest, a lot of truth to that. A lot of the time. But it is also true, of course, that the desire to be free of a God who judges is also very much wish fulfillment. And certainly no less empirically (laughs) provable than not, right? So that if we say that God is dead, that means we're taking responsibility on ourselves. Nietzsche said this a century and a half ago. There's a famous passage that he wrote when he says, God is dead. Now, what he, he didn't mean God was ever alive. He never thought that was true. He's saying, if we want to actually admit this, that God isn't real, this is what he says, God is dead. God remains dead and we've killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there to, for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? That last line is important. Will we not have to convince ourselves that we are gods? That we are the judge of what is good and evil? That we can accomplish what we want You see what he is, give him credit, at least he's being honest, right? That the consequences are, if there is no God, then we have to take responsibility for our place in the world. And that is very much the modern world, isn't it? With the delusion that we must be the ones to determine what is right or wrong. And more than that, must convince others or force others to see it our way. 
You see, becoming more and more secularized has not freed us from judgment. It has simply shifted who the judge is and has put that burden squarely on our shoulders. I think much of the vitriol we feel in Western society is because of that weight that we have taken on ourselves, that we now have to be judge, jury, and executioner. But what if God gave himself? What if Jesus was forsaken? You see, that undermines the fear that God will just come and judge us because we've already been judged, at least if we're in him. It also exposes the truth about us, maybe truths that those of us who are religious are not always willing to face about who we are or about what our desire for power says about who we are. God on a cross is perplexing. It is disturbing. What must it mean about him? You see, this is really important. The cross is the place where human evil and divine judgment meets. But what does it achieve? What is God's purpose in it? There is, we, you see, we can easily get, as we think about the cross, lost in the violence and the terror of that moment. When we think about the moment itself. And in fact, this is one of the great problems that emerged even in the church in the late Middle Ages was there were all these churches filled with crucifixes that had images of Jesus himself, well, supposedly, uh, suffering and dying on it. And the fixation became on the outward expression of his torture and what is missing is what he had accomplished, what his heart was. So that if you're confronted with the consequences of your sin without knowing clearly what it has achieved, it will only be a source of guilt. There's no other way you can see it. But that is not what's going on here. Because the irony is that when the soldiers mocked a coronation, they actually were crowning him king. Because they did not understand that what they were actually achieving in his crucifixion was his defeat of sin. That by passing judgment, he was removing the judgment on us. See, we're not called when we think about the cross, and this is again Fleming Rutledge, to feel compassion for Jesus. She says, that's all right as far as it goes, I suppose, but it's misdirected. It would be near the mark to stress Jesus' compassion for us. But that too is insufficient. On the cross, Jesus is not just showing compassion. By paying the ransom of his own life and descending into hell for us, he is effectively delivering us. The point of contemplating the cross is our delivery from sin. 
I mean, I, I don't know what was going on through the, in the centurion's mind in verse 39, but it is this powerful moment where this pagan guy is watching all of this unfold and declares, truly, this man was the son of God. He saw that something was going on. He probably didn't have the categories to really process it, right? And I can tell you the commentators spend a lot of time spinning their wheels trying to figure that one out. And I, but all I know is that at the very beginning of Mark, in the very first verse of Mark, he says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is the moment, you see, when Jesus was baptized, what did he hear? A voice that said, you're my son. And that was, the, that was the bat signal to Jesus to get going in his ministry. And we saw at the transfiguration, we looked at this way back in January, that when they go up on the mountain, he hears the voice again. That you are my son, and that is the signal to head to Jerusalem, to end it. Because the work of the Son of God was to lay down his life for us. Jesus says as much. In Mark, he says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus ransoming us. This is the payment for our freedom. This is the price of it, which means that the cross is not a tragedy. It is an injustice, yes, against Jesus. It is a terrifying and horrifying experience, yes. But it is not a tragedy because it is not out of his control. Instead, it is him at work. It is Jesus accomplishing the one way our redemption could be Fulfilled. The one way he could free us from the power of sin. And that is what the cross is for. To deliver us from sin. To deliver us from its guilt and its power. Because it is in his death that he is judged in our place. And because he has given his life in our place, we are judged as him. That is our doctrine of justification, isn't it? It is made effective at this moment. This is the moment it all hinges on. That Jesus gave his life in our place. And we are freed from the power of sin because Jesus has taken the power of sin away because he has died in our place. And look, his resurrection is going to confirm, is going to prove that, in fact, the power of death is broken. But this is what sanctification is. This is what it means to be changed, is to know that the actual power of sin in your life has been broken. And is why he sends the Spirit, so that we would not live as those who are still under the power of death and sin, but as those who are under the power of the Spirit, who have been crucified with Christ and raised up. What we're called to do is reflect deeply on the cross. And this is what the, all the disciples do. If you think about the rest of the New Testament, it is constantly on their mind. It is the thing that gives them freedom from the guilt 
of sin and it is the thing that shows them what it means to live into the life they've been given. Live out of the power of the resurrection. Because we are called to live as those who have been crucified with Christ and yet live. We are called to lay down our lives. And the only way that makes any sense is if your mind is filled with the cross and the power of it. I mean, think about this. Do you want to be known for who you really are? You need to look at the cross because it is the only way that that has any hope in it. Do you need confidence that God is actually for you? Then look at the cross. Do you need assurance that you will not be abandoned? Look at the cross. Do you need clarity about whether God actually wants you to deal with sin and is actually powerful enough to deal with it? Then look at the cross. To put it differently, if you really want to have faith in someone, you need to know they're faithful. So look at the cross. If you really want to have hope in someone, you need to know that they're reliable to the end. Look at the cross. If you really want to love someone, you need to know that they are good and kind. Look at the cross. Isaac Watts wrote a hymn called When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and I'm sure plenty of you know it. And it is about looking at the cross. The first verse, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And he goes on about the cross for Several more verses, and this is what, and then he stops to think at the end. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. As I say, if I've been given everything at the cross, even if I had all of the world to give, it would be too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That is the good news. Amen. Lord, we pray that you would make the good news clear to us. Pray that even as we come to this meal that you prepared to remind us of the good news, that we would see clearly Jesus' life given for us. So feed us, we pray, on Jesus. In his name we ask. Amen.